I'm Natasha Chandran. And I'm Anna Avramovska. And this is No One, a podcast that explores the distorted narratives of our postmodern society. In today's episode, Anna and I explore the way sleep has become the last frontier to this capitalist world. This episode is recorded on Gadigal land. So before we begin, we would like to pay respects to the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who have looked after these lands and water for tens of thousands of years. We acknowledge that this land was stolen from them and that sovereignty has never been ceded. We mean to make things over. We are tired of toil for naught, but bare enough to live on, never an hour for thought. We want to feel the sunshine. We want to smell the flowers. We are sure that God has willed it, and we mean to have eight hours. We are summoning our forces from shipyard, shop, and mill. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. This is Anna reading the chant that the labor movement used when fighting for the eight-hour workday. Hello, Anna. Hi, Natasha. How are you? (laughs) How have you been? Uh, <laughs> I think I can only answer that with one sentence. Um, I watched the presidential debate. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> oh my God, what a shit show. To think that women were told for eons and we're still told that we cannot be in the highest office of government. Mm, I mean, what was that? What was that? I think, and, uh, I don't know, but I think that shit show is like, too good of a word or a phrase for that. That wasn't a shit show. That was just, I don't know, two hours of shit. <laughs> I mean, how do we come to this as an evolution of our species? Like, how? Yeah, how do we come to I this? I don't know. I just, just want to go to bed oh. for a while. <laughs> I know, tell me about it. But anyway, on a positive, anyway. <laughs> on a positive note, We really loved all the comments and sharing of experiences with the last episode, right? Mm -hmm. It was really amazing to hear from you people. And Anna and I will try to do the same with each episode to sort of throw the questions out to you so that it's not just us yapping away like Donald Trump, God forbid. And again, please, if you like our content, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So we've been thinking a lot Um, about sleep lately and um, especially now most of us are at home more um, or we work from home because of the pandemic Mm. and sleep is the only activity that we collectively do that slices up our time to denote what is um, resting time and what is working time let's say (laughs) it keeps us sane oh god yes yeah and you know as usual we thought you know let's try and problematize sleep and to sort of look at the narratives that surround it and go beyond the biology of what we commonly think sleep is only about. Mm, yeah, even though we know that sleep is very much real. I mean, we have all felt the very real effects of sleep deprivation. Mm. Like everything else, sleep is more than just a biological process. And Natasha and I asked ourselves what sort of ideas and conceptualizations that we have play a role in perhaps altering the way we sleep or even how much we sleep. Yeah. I mean, when we started working on this episode and we were talking about sleep to our circle of friends, we were quite surprised that all the conversation, all the conversations about this became this sort of site mm. of trauma. And the people that we had spoken to had 
pretty difficult relationships with sleep because there was this this struggle to to sleep. Mm. And you know, the stresses of the day somehow culminates in this struggle of trying to get good mm. sleep. Yeah, that's right. And I think exactly that, what you're saying, I think that propelled us to delve deeper into sleep as um, a concept. Mm. And I mean, like everything else, sleep must be and in fact is also political right mm, mm, absolutely and you know who would have thought you know something that you do every day something that is seemingly so innocent has now been appended by capitalism <laughs> how natasha and anna deconstruct concepts <laughs> step one everything is political <laughs> step two how can we blame capitalism <laughs> But yes, really, if you're wondering why these two stooges are talking about capitalism in an episode about sleep, it's because it is impossible to talk about anything we do, you know, be it political, social, economical, like right down to even just sleep without talking about the ideology that underpins everything we do. I mean, we live and exist with and within capitalism. And I think just because we, Anna and I, can't offer a solution or an alternative system, it doesn't in itself cancel out the need for critiquing it. Yes, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, we should be thinking, I mean, we should also believe that we can do better than this. Right? I mean, mm, mm. <laughs> did you watch the presidential debate? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I can't get over it. <laughs> yeah, we have to do better. Uh, and now that we've prefaced this episode, <laughs> let's get straight into it. So, Natasha and I kept thinking about the constant attacks on sleep and how they contribute to the struggle with getting good sleep and how even that desire in itself creates further anxieties mm, mm. and what we were constantly coming to was this vision of a 24-7 universe mm. I mean we can all on some level understand what a 24-7 universe entails mm. and I don't know some more than others depending on where you live mm. but the 24-7 universe I love this the word I can just say vision or society but mm. universe yeah yeah <laughs> this 24 7 universe i think it, it is the ultimate capitalist imagining and that is something that we are striving for as a society i, I don't know why but we are so um, it is a universe where productivity and consumption are center stage mm. and i think what is important here is that um, is the fundamental idea that drives this imagining. Mm. And it is that the only thing that exists here is not you as an individual, but it is your time. Mm. And more importantly, your time that can be commodified, that can be bought. And I think what you know we mean by this is the only time in which you would exist in this 24-7 universe is where you either produce or and consume and anything in between is deemed irrelevant mm. and i think you know i mean a good way or to perhaps explain this is through you know the metaphor of a shopping mall so imagine a society as um a shopping mall that is open 24 7 right and in this shopping mall there's no distinction between night and day 
in this shopping mall, you are both workers and consumers, all consumers. And this exchange that oscillates between these two roles, it's it's a never-ending cycle. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, that's a really good way to put it. And I think to bring this even closer to home, I think we can all see this in the way we live and strive to capitalize on every aspect of our lives. Mm. I think we have started to lead our lives as a business. Mm. And I mean, we are all complicit in this. I mean, I do this, Natasha does it. Mm -hmm. And as a society, we constantly measure people in our social circles by what they have done, achieved, or accomplished. Mm. You always hear people asking, oh, what do you do? What have you been working on? Or my my personal favorite is what did you get up to on the weekend? Mm. And it seems to me, I don't know, I don't know what you people think. Maybe it's not everyone's experience, but for me, what I, I think the only acceptable or socially acceptable answer is something that adds value to your social capital. Mm. You can't really say, I was sitting on the sofa and thinking. And, and trust me, I've tried. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a good look. And I think, I think another like a the best example for this is social media. We constantly try to build our social capital through our social media, mm. create a personal brand or whatever, which makes all those other parts of life that are not quantifiable um, just invisible. Mm, mm. Yeah, and, you know, it's not to say that Anna and I don't use social media or we're, you know, we're saying, you know, get off it and stop it. We're, you know, we, we, we're not saying that. I think most of us don't actually have the privilege to do that. We're not millionaires or billionaires. I think exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think my problem, you know, our problem with it is that it is that it constantly demands and prescribes that things that cannot be in some way recorded are irrelevant. Mm. And I think, I mean, feel free to disagree, and this is our theory. Is is this problem, you know, or our need to rationalize everything mm -hmm. and rationalization as a mode of governing our thinking and way of life has to a large extent left no room for nuance mm. well at least this is what I think mm. and I mean what I mean by this is you know when we think of rational thinking it always assumes and involves a type of measuring mm -hmm. where if you do a you get b mm-hmm mm -hmm. And I think um, a good example is like if we take a look at the idea or the concept of love, I mean, we've all experienced it on some level, but, you know, no one can measure or quantify the meaning that love gives to our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same with sleep. Just because we can't measure the meaning it gives to our lives, it doesn't mean we should allow it, allow for it to be hijacked. You know, mm -hmm. like enjoyment is not rational. Kindness is not rational. Empathy is not mm, rational. Donald Trump is not rational. <laughs> I think we can all see the meaninglessness he brings to our lives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's. But no, what you're saying is so true. I mean, I also really love our relationship, like you and me, mm. um, to each other as each other's editors. Mm -mm. Because it's amazing to see the process that you um, go through when you're writing a creative piece or an essay. 
Mm. And, it, and it's so good to see the process behind it because we always look at the finished product, but we rarely think about how it happened mm. and what that process entails and, and looks like. I mean, in your case, it can look pretty disturbing. Oh, she thinks, Anna. <laughs> Sitting and staring at a wall for hours. <laughs> but uh, Or even, even when we are co-writing, you know, we, we stop talking mid-sentence and sit in silence for a long period of time. Not a Oh, it doesn't make us look good, but no. I think all um, those pro- those processes are ones that cannot be in any way rationalized or measured, but it is a part of who we are, and we don't consciously do it. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I guess they're they're not going anywhere. No, no, they're not. Yeah, yeah. And I think I don't know. I was I think I was telling you about this a couple of weeks ago. I had a conversation about sleep with a friend who asked me if technology could eliminate sleep, eliminate sleep and we would gain so many hours and still reap the benefits of sleep, why would I be against that? Mm. Isn't that progressive? Mm. And, and I didn't have an answer and I had to agree with her in that moment, but it bothered me, mm. you know. I have a soft spot for sleep. You are too soft of a spot. (laughs) And uh, I felt uncomfortable with the idea of it being hijacked. And the answer why I don't agree with her, which had occurred to me later, was quite simple because it's impossible and I I freaking love it. It, it, It's what makes me human. Yeah, I think the sad thing is that we're already performing and existing as if this is our reality. I mean, no wonder we experience burnout. We, you know, we really need to stop romanticizing these prescriptive ideas of the optimal human being. I mean, why is a four-hour sleep day something to strive for? <laughs> that. Yeah, I know <laughs> that. Seriously, but but that's exactly what what uh, made me think that at the center of the discussion of sleep is this disparity of what it means to be human mm. and what we imagine our potential is Mm-mm. as humans. I think the problem with a lot of progressive tech ideas and especially this capitalist movements towards a 24-7 society, I think what they tend to forget is that the potential is purely that, mm. a potential. Mm. It is not a current reality. And like you said, a lot of us are acting as this was our reality and experience burnout as a result. I mean, fair enough, it is a creative human vision of what, I don't know, our society might look like and us as humans, but it is utopian fiction and and, and I don't actually want that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, someone's utopia could be another's dystopia. Mm, Exactly. As a human race, we're always striving for bigger, better, more, and I think a major part of our journey in advancement is predicated on efficiency. However, with any advancement, you know, it would probably be good practice to ask oneself, why are we doing this? Or is this even ethical? Mm. And exactly. And I think those are the questions that we need to ask ourselves, especially when we are all active participants and contributors to this 24-7 project. Mm. And I think that's where sleep plays an important role, right? Because... Mm. It's visible and tangible, unlike love or hope. Mm. And like Jonathan Creary, an academic who wrote on the subject, 
claims sleep because of its tangibility. I mean, if we don't have it, we will die. It represents a moment of time in our human lives that cannot be colonized or hijacked for profits. And as such, it is, you know, it's why it's such a conundrum for all these mega conglomerates. Mm, Yeah, that's right. I think the Netflix CEO mentioned that Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep. I mean, it shouldn't come as no surprise that it is constantly under attack. Yes. I mean, how many of us have lost sleep because of the autoplay feature on Netflix? Mm, Yeah, exactly. I have (laughs) for sure. And I think, uh, you know, going back to Crary, I think his insight on this is brilliant. He says we can't separate sleep from all the other ongoing dismantling of social protections in other spheres. Mm. Just as universal access to clean drinking water has been devastated around the world by pollution and privatization, and you know we you know we now have to pay for bottled water in in some places. So it's mm. really not difficult to see a similar construction of scarcity in relation to sleep. And all these encroachments on sleep create the insomniac conditions in which sleep must be bought. And I think what he's pointing to is all these attacks on sleep are usually first experienced by the most vulnerable. Mm, yeah, that's that's very interesting. It's it, it, it's true. This I think mm, if anything creates a further class divide between the haves and have-nots. And I I really don't think it's a far-fetched idea to say that sleep is for the privileged. Mm. I think as migrants, I'm sure we can all attest to the endless hours of trying to survive and reeling from the effects of what that does to our sleep. Mm. I mean, for example, in Australia, legally, companies are required to give you an eight-hour break after having worked 13 hours. And for most migrants, those eight hours is where all of life has mm. to happen. <laughs> and so just to, just just think about what is left for sleep. And, and, and that's only considering migrants that have legal jobs, mm. right? Mm. And, and we know that the rest falls through the, through the cracks. And when I arrived in Australia, I had three jobs and, and usually slept for like four hours a day. And I had to do university on top of that. So... Mm. Yeah, and yeah. sleep is the first thing out of the window, right? Mm, yeah, when for sure. To live in today's world, you need to work insane hours just to survive, let alone achieve some sort of quality lifestyle. And that's unless you have some sort of social safety net, you know, through your family or, or their wealth. Mm. And I think if we're able to, we who are privileged or have more privilege should aim to protect sleep for those who don't have the same privileges. Mm. I think Jenny O'Dell writes in her book, How to Do Nothing, about the labor movement in 1886 that fought for the eight-hour workday, the eight hours of sleep, and eight hours for what you will. Mm. And it's a shame to see that something they fought so hard for now slowly disintegrating. Yes, the the chant that I read in the beginning from the, was from that fight mm-hmm. the 8 hour um, work uh, day fight mm-hmm. and yeah it's it's really sad that um, to see that not only our free free time is being hijacked but um, it's sleep is also being hijacked mm-hmm. yeah it, it's so sad yeah absolutely and you know on top of all of that we cannot ignore how 
sleep has now evolved into a bona fide economy. And we've made this possible by the fervor of technology and science. It's a multi-billion dollar industry ranging from high-end pajamas to measuring our sleep, assessing lighting and temperature in our Mm. bedrooms and adjusting the firmness of our beds, you know, all of which you can do now Mm. through an app. (laughs) Yeah, this progressive, I don't know, advancements or whatever, or the system has Mm. given us high-end pajamas and temperature-adjusting duvets, but no sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what I've just mentioned here is not even touching the farmer aspect of this industry and the profits earned through selling sleep medication. Mm. I think that really tells us something about how distorted our sleeping patterns have become and how now we're all scrambling to attain the best sleep we can. I mean, I have a diffuser in my room that I read somewhere was supposedly helpful in creating an optimum conducive environment to sleep. Does it really work? I don't know, but you know, we're so afraid of missing out on good sleep because we think that it will make us unproductive for the marketplace. Mm, yeah, that's so true. I mean, mattresses alone are, uh, I don't know, a $15 billion industry. I think that's, that's what I read. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, picture this. You have, you know, companies out there, engineers, researchers, CEOs, down to the salesmen or call center agents, if you will, all working to sell you the best possible sleep ever, knowingly or unknowingly of the largest sinister underpinnings of what this could mean. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And I think if you think about it, at the same time, our sleep is attacked by this rhetoric that sleep is for losers or that it's for the weak or it's a luxury. Mm, mm. And I think this creates a sort of deregulation of sleep. Mm. Um, What I mean by this deregulation of sleep is that we live under the illusion that we have freedom of choice, Mm. but at the same time we live in grind culture. that favors perpetual growth in all spheres of life and with little or no consideration to the well-being of the individual. Mm. And I think this rhetoric of freedom of choice is, I don't want to say false because that takes um, away uh, our power Mm. to resist. um, But then at the same time, I think if we are not aware of the workings of the system we live in, one that is constantly trying to own our attention without Mm. any consent by addicting us to gadgets or one that prescribes what it means to be successful only in material terms, then we don't really know what our freedom is. Mm. And if we don't see how our freedoms are being attacked, then we won't be able to protect our freedoms or understand what our freedoms are. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And Capitalism is infiltrating your sleep process right down to the very minute before your eyes close so that it can just make that very last cell before you're no longer of value for the next eight hours. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? Mm. Because it needs you to continuously consume all the way up until you go to sleep. But it also needs you somewhat well-rested so as to make sure that your labor the next day is at its optimum. So at the end of the day, you know, it's it's 
if you really think about it, it's it's winning mm. both ways. Mm, yeah. Oh, I think I need a nap now. Let's should we take a break? Yes, let's yeah. take a break. To everyone, it's not all doom and gloom. Yeah, even though by this point it's a bit hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't noticed, Anna and I don't believe in this um, positive thinking crap. You know, the ones that say, I don't want to know how bad it is. It's too much. I don't want to hear <laughs> all this negativity. <laughs> yes, believe it or not, we consider ourselves as the true eternal optimists. <laughs> Because we acknowledge the shit. Yeah, and, you know, it's simple AA meeting 12-step program stuff, right? Because in, in order to recover, you need to name and know the problem. Hmm. Yeah, that, 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 that's true. And I think um, there's a reason. I mean, we're not being ironic. No, we're not. <laughs> uh, why we consider ourselves eternal optimists is because we actually believe that we can do better mm, better mm. than this and um shout out to all the skeptics and realists out there that yes. are listening <laughs> yes. who always get a bad rep for being party poopers mm. we really think that you are the true optimists and humanists <laughs> yes 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 positive thinking should include acknowledging the problem because you know again if you cannot name it you cannot see it, let alone work with mm, it. Yeah, Fire Festival, case in point. If you want to see a documentary that we interpret as positive thinking gonna ride, then uh, watch it. <laughs> yes, it's on Netflix, by the way. Yeah. So yeah, the moral of the story of sleep is we can do better. We can protect sleep and resist. And more importantly, to protect sleep is to protect all the other seemingly useless processes that make us human mm, yeah, yeah yeah i think for me personally i see sleep as um the human need to process experiences mm. and i think you would agree right mm. and i think we, we talked about the problem of consuming or consumption mm. and we also i think we kind of came to this point we kind of understood um that um and we need to say this, that consumption on its own, it's not necessarily bad. Mm -hmm, I mean, reading a book is also consuming. Watching a good film or listening to good music or um, educating ourselves is mm -hmm. also a sort of consumption. And as human, we are social creatures, right? We, mm -hmm. we, we do consume. That's, that's part of who we are. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is that we don't really process anything properly now. We're not even properly consuming, Yeah, you can yeah. say, because... Consumption now very quickly leads to overconsumption. Mm. I mean, the other day I was reading a book and all I was thinking about was about all these other things that I could be reading or watching mm. at that mm. moment. So I couldn't really engage or um, experience enjoy and, and enjoy it. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, I think, I think most of us experience that on some level. Mm. And I also think that it's super important that you've just said that. Mm. I think I think this process of deconstructing sleep 
I think what it has shown me is that sleep is like a mirror. Mm. I mean, let's say I would go to sleep and when I woke up the next day, my anxieties and issues from the day before could, I don't know, be either gone or they can be multiplied. And I think that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's exactly what Levinas, the um, French-Lithuanian philosopher, meant when he said sleep is crucial you know, to the development of oneself because it serves as a refuge to the brutalities of our wakeful daily worlds. Mm. And you know, we need to think of sleep as the unifying emblem of what it means to be human. So, you know, enjoy it, revel in it. And I think it's important to start a discussion amongst our community, you know, our friends and family about self-care and especially about self-care as part of our activism because mm -hmm. I, I think I remember this I remember when we were, when we drove back from Melbourne before the lockdown mm. we were somewhere in that long stretch in Canberra and we were listening to the wisdom podcast and I think it was the episode with Robina Curtin a Tibetan Buddhist nun and she was talking about her life as a radical feminist and activist and how at some point she realized that anger and rage wasn't enough to sustain her activism. And she described anger as this momentary explosive energy that sucks everything out of you, leaving very little behind. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I I think I think it's okay to have anger. Mm -hmm. Anger in itself can be useful and cathartic. However, I think what Robina was getting at, and it was really it was really a light bulb moment for me at that point, because I was experiencing all this rage and anger mm -hmm. in my own activism mm -hmm. and is that for any activism or, you know, particularly for me, my, for my activism to endure, it needs to be rooted in compassion mm. and not only towards others, but equally to oneself. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. That's what I remember that. I mean, uh, we talked about it later. Mm. And I think that kind of informed the way we now think ab about Mm. Our activism, I mean, mm. even not just our activism, our lives. Mm -hmm. I think we shouldn't even separate those two. Yeah. Um, I think the world at, at this moment right now is mm. flooded with problems that require urgent and more importantly, I think, sustained yes. action. Yeah. And we cannot expect for a radical shift to occur immediately. Um, immediately. And, and, and I think... I don't know, it's kind of like a game of stamina. Yes. If we want to sustain our acti activism, whether it's um, um, about the environment, mm. Black Lives Matter, you know, mm. or all this, um, I mean, everything intersects, but um, we need to make sure that, uh, you know, that we need sustenance, right? Yeah. We need to make sure we get sustenance and sleep and rest are our sustenance. Mm. We need to protect sleep as part of our activism. Yeah, and I think when we say protected, you know, I, hopefully, you know, we're not trying to add to the stress and paranoia that uh, that's already out there about getting enough sleep, mm. you know, and we know that that's out there already. Mm, yeah, that's, that's true. I think, I think, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we need, we, we, what we're trying to say is like do more things that have no motivation or goal Mm -hmm. that move our lives towards the business business model yes everything you do kind of advances you as a brand mm -hmm. yes absolutely and you know in this postmodern era we've 
we've lost prescribed ideas of what life is and should be. And, you know, this is great. This is a lib- this is absolutely liberating for the most part because that allows for nuance and subjectivity. But then with the encroachment of technological advancement, all these techie ideas that we talked about, we need to make time to figure out what our values are and what our personal code of conduct is. And I think, you know, having a personal code of conduct is self-care. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's so true. I mean, that that's very well said. Having a personal code of conduct is mm. self-care. And, and it's interesting to say this because it reminds me of the time I was in Arunachal Pradesh in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And mm. I was surprised to see the insanely tight schedule and code of conduct that the monks had to adhere to. Mm-hmm. And I think discipline is a major part in this wisdom tradition. Mm. I, I'm sure that's not that's not without reason. Mm. Of course, I'm not talking about rigid discipline. It was actually a really beautiful thing to watch. And having a code of conduct in that setting allowed for quiet contemplation. Mm. And, and it's not like you achieved anything Mm. or that you will achieve anything by having a code of conduct but it's not it's not like a means to an end it's an end in its own right mm, the mm. discipline never stops it's kind of like an extension of who you are mm, mm. yeah and i you know i think what you're trying to say is this personal code of conduct is something we need to strive for whatever it may be and you know in order to figure out what this code of conduct is for you you need space and time and and we've you know you and I we've added rest to our personal code of conduct, and I think we're better for it. I mean, not materially maybe, <laughs> but I hope mentally, definitely, right? Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I mean, it's okay to be that person. In fact, you know, it's important to be that person that tells your boss or whomever, "I'm sorry, this is as much as I can do." Mm, I think it's so true you say that. It's not just okay, but it is important. To resist in that way, and especially if you're privileged and can realistically afford to do that, Mm. because the world we are living in is rooted in inequities, Mm. and some of us might be able to afford to work long hours and pay for takeout or domestic help or have high-paying jobs or high-end pajamas. Yes. (laughs) But... Yeah. <laughs> but that kind of privilege doesn't extend to everybody. Mm-hmm. If you if you choose to work more or, or work a lot because you have everything else paid for and looked after, you are complicit in amplifying the inequalities of this world and you contribute to the hijacking of rest mm-hmm. for uh, from other people. And of course, you know, uh this you you are the one that knows if this um, is the case for you and and to what extent you mm. can resist mm, absolutely and you know i also think it's important to reject this um notion that you have to earn your rest mm. you know you, you don't i mean isn't it ours for the taking mm. i mean for people of color who already have to work twice as hard to get the same privileges white people have as a given you know, we're 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 more we're more likely to lose more, and so I think the resisting needs to be a collective effort. But you know, it can start with us. Mm. So you know, yes, you know, take your time, take your rest, and sleep seriously. Mm. 
we now see everything as an investment and everything we do has to somehow give us returns. But I don't think we should think of sleep or rest in those terms. I mean, they can be means towards your activism by helping you sustain it. But at the same time, they can be an end in their own right. Sleep and rest are activism. Mm, yeah, that's so true. Sleep and rest are activism. Yeah, mm. you're, you're totally right. And I think in a system that doesn't value you in as, as an individual, but only your time, sleeping and resting is you saying you value you. Yeah. So, you know, we'd like to throw the question out to you people. I mean, what do you people think? Mm. I think it's an interesting discussion that, you know, we can and should probably have as a community. And I don't know, perhaps, you know, we can continue this conversation in the comments and mm. feel free to disagree with us. You know, mm. that's disagreeing is great because it's engagement. And we'd really also love to hear what your personal code of conduct is in these crazy times. Mm. We can definitely add that to our list. So yeah, in short, you know, what we're getting at is the striving to resist. And that's what's important here. It's not about whether you've been successful in completely resisting. It's more about the attempt, which, you know, we both think is the first step and what counts the most. So yes, people, new model, rest and resist. Mm, yeah, rest and resist. And yeah, just remember, if you want to share some of your experiences on this subject or share your personal code of conduct, you can go to our Instagram, which is at knownist, um, and that's <laughs> at know.an.ist. Or our Facebook page, which is just known podcast. Yes, and in our next episode called Ships, we look at the concept of ships. Romantic relationship, friendship, kinship, partnership. The ships by which we organize our lives. What happens when the order in which society organizes the importance of certain relationships clashes with your personal hierarchy, or rather the lack of one? And what is lost by structuring society and values based on a ship hierarchy? And has it always been this way? Mm, yeah, so stay tuned. Bye. Bye.